Good morning, gentlemen. You ever heard of the Sermon on the Mount? That's what we're going to try to study this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, your Bibles ought to be automatically opening about there by now. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16 today. We have seen that Jesus is a teaching Messiah. And that's a very powerful weapon that he had and has. And his teaching continues today. As men like you go out and proclaim his word in a variety of different ways to those around you. He is a teacher. And that teaching is very powerful. It'll, it'll change people, families, cities, nations. It'll change the world. And we saw that uh, in Matthew, he gives us five sermons, which are really kind of a handbook of Christian discipleship. And we're in the first sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's interesting that Jesus, the teacher, begins by blessing his ears. He gives us a benediction. He begins the service with a benediction. And the people he blesses are his own people. And he describes them. They're poor in spirit. They mourn. They are meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. And they are also persecuted. So he describes those who are his followers. And then he says they are blessed. And in these Beatitudes, we've seen that what Jesus is doing is blessing the people that he describes as his own people. Those Beatitudes describe our relationship to God and our relationship to the outside world. What we see in verses 13 through 16 is that Jesus has an intention to change this world. He has an intention to bless the world. And it goes all the way back to Abraham. When Abraham was was told, I will bless you, and through you I will bless other nations. So God's people are here to be blessed, but also to bless others. And in verses 13 through 16, uh, we see how that's supposed to happen. And sometimes we forget uh, that that is one of God's intentions for our lives, to be a blessing, to be a transformative agent in the lives of other people. Let's look at Matthew 5, 13 through 16 and pick up there on the sermon. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's notice, first of all, just by the use of these two analogies, that Jesus is teaching us that faithful engagement with the world is our calling. Faithful engagement with the world is our calling. You can see that we are the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world, and those two agents, salt and light, uh, are interactive with the world around them. That's how they make a difference. They get engaged with the world around them. Salt doesn't do you a whole lot of good if it's left in the salt shaker. 
And sometimes uh, Christians, as uh, Rebecca Pippert said in her book years ago, need to get out of the salt shaker. You're not going to do a whole lot of good if all you do is gather for Bible study and worship. Believe me, gathering for Bible study and worship is really important because otherwise we lose our saltiness. But now having saltiness, we've got to get out and engage in the world. Now, you can see this, uh, especially with the analogy of light. In John's gospel, he says, he quotes Jesus as saying, I am the light of the world. And we're told in John 1 that he is, he is the light, and the, he is the life and the light of men. So Jesus Christ is God's light. But then it's amazing that he says here, not that he is the light of the world, but you're the light of the world. So when you take Christ into your life, actually that same light shines into the world and the world is meant to see it. And the salt is meant to be felt by the world. Now, I'd like for us to look at uh, what are known as models of church and culture, or we could say the believer in culture, Christians in culture. There are different ways in which different people strategize their citizenship in this world. I'd like for us to look at some of these and talk about them. The first one is called accommodation. And the idea here is the world is good. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's a wonderful place. And as the Bible says, all things have been put here for our enjoyment. So, have at it. And uh, you can read uh, certain scripture texts and pull them out of context, especially Ecclesiastes and some other places, uh, and just eat, drink, and be merry. And the idea is that we're, we're here to get along with the world. And uh, unfortunately, even some denominations have done that. There's tremendous pressure from the outside world to believe this or to do this or to tolerate that or to condone that or to bless that. And you can find that so often the church just goes down the way with the world. Of course, the, the greatest example of this would be the pogroms in Germany in the late 1930s uh, leading up to World War II and to the Holocaust where so many uh, evangelical Christians... Uh, kept their mouths shut, failed to oppose the Nazi regime at the risk of their own lives. And they accommodated what was going on. It's called laissez-faire. And uh, this leads to many, many evils. And all that it takes for unrighteousness to prevail in any nation is for good men to say nothing or not to stand up for what they say. And it's amazing what happens when you actually stand up uh, for what you believe in. So accommodation doesn't work, it's actually a form of evil. And so often I think in the, if, if, if I can generalize this way, and it is a generalization, so often in mainline Protestantism, we've just found a strategy of accommodation. Or sometimes, you know, guys will say, well, you know, some people like to be with Christians all the time. And, oh, I get out there. Yeah, and they play golf with the same old uh, foursome and cuss just like all the rest of them and overdrink just like the rest of them in the 19th hole. And they think they've been out there really mucking it up with, uh, with the unbelievers. No, all you've done is just to accommodate to your outside culture. So there are many forms of accommodation. And uh, we find, of course, in, in our country, in our region, one of the, the, the worst forms of accommodation was accommodation to the oppression of African Americans for hundreds of years right here in our own region. 
and the church with real tall steeples and preachers every Sunday rising up to speak to it, uh, to, to speak to uh, issues in the Christian faith, but not speaking to that one. It's amazing what, what popular opinion on the outside will do to professing Christian people on the inside when we get afraid, afraid of various things. We get afraid of being marginalized. We get afraid of being uh, held in contempt. We get afraid of threats and so on. And we accommodate. And we stop thinking biblical thoughts. And we'll even take the Bible and pervert it and distort it so that we can get along with the outside world. And there are ways in which that's happening even today. You see it in sexual morality, where the church is accommodating all kinds of things, blessing all kinds of things now, just out of fear of what others will think about us. And we must be men who have salt and light. We don't lose our saltiness, not accommodating with the outside world. It's amazing to me, if you even take the immigration issue right now, the immigration issue is both parties uh, politically are afraid to touch it because it's going to get them in so much political trouble, and yet it's one of the major moral social justice issues that's facing us right now. We're allowing people to cross our borders, and uh, that's another debate of what should be done on the borders, but we've been allowing intentionally a flood of people who are non-citizens to come into our land. And now that they get here, we use them as cheap labor. We, we don't give them right to, right to scholarship for college. Now, you just tell me, what happens to young men who are 15 years of age, get to 18 years of age, have no access to education and to upward mobility in the culture? Now, what do they do? It's no mystery that we have Hispanic gangs all over the place in our schools because we've cut off access to power. And so it's just, and the evangelical church has been absorbed into the Republican Party's agenda on this. Well, until you protect the borders, we're not going to deal with immigration reform. Complete accommodation through a political agenda that doesn't have anything to do with what the Bible says about sojourners and strangers. Doesn't have anything to do with what the Bible says. And the church is just swept away with a political agenda. Did I just talk about politics? Let's move on. Uh, Okay, I think, listen, if you think I just trashed your political party, I'm sorry, I'll trash the other one in just a few minutes. Let me, I'll figure out something to say about them too. Okay, uh, the second strategy is withdrawal. The world is bad. Some people think the world is so bad, it's going to hell, the sooner we disassociate ourselves from it, the better. Uh, a really fine Christian author, Tom, Dr. Tom Sign, was giving a lecture at one point. John Stott quotes this in his book years ago uh, on this issue. And uh, a woman came up to him and said, if we start feeding hungry people, things won't get worse. And if things don't get worse, Jesus won't come back. (laughs) She was serious. Now, there's kind of an ultimate caricature of withdrawing Christians who just hand this world over to go to hell, and the sooner, sooner it goes to hell, the better, because Jesus will come back and save all of us. And there's some people who actually believe that. They're in a very small minority, I hope. But there are a lot of people who act like it. And they just give up on the world. Moved to Australia. Well, I've been to Australia, and I just want to tell you that's not going to help you very much. They just want to get out. Just withdraw from the world. There are certain... Uh, denominational groups that tend to be not only pious but pietistic and think they can protect their own holiness 
just by withdrawing from the problems in the culture. What would have happened if the Roman Christians had done that? If they hadn't cared for the widows and the poor and those who were diseased and those who were hungry and thirsty? What would have happened if they just pulled themselves away from the world? I'll tell you what, you and I wouldn't be here because the church wouldn't have grown and missionaries wouldn't have been sent all over the world as they were. But they engaged the desperate problems of their own day in the Roman Empire. And so no matter what our problems are, we engage the desperate issues of our own day. There's no excuse for us to withdraw. So we neither accommodate by thinking, oh, the world is good, I'll just have a blast in it, nor do we withdraw by saying the world is so bad, I can't have anything to do with it. Thirdly, through the centuries, many have tried the strategy of imposition. And they say, the world is mine, and I'm going to change it. For my sake, I'm going to take over and bring in the kingdom of God. And of course, this Uh, has its legacy all the way back to uh, uh, Constantine, uh, who in the 5th century Christianized the Roman Empire. We were going, yay! Your Christianity is finally validated in the Roman Empire of all places. And now some representatives can be Christians and some people around the king can be Christians and the king's mother is a Christian and it's just wonderful. And it creates what we call Christendom. That the political kingdom is going to be a Christian kingdom. Now there's some things to be said for this in the, in the positive. Certainly we'll, we'll get to this in a minute about our own political engagements uh, as salt and light. But there's a lot not to be said for it too. It leads to things like inquisitions and crusades where we take the power of the sword and the power of the state to implement what we prefer morally and theologically in the world. So through the Inquisitions, we imposed our will on people's belief systems. I mean, the Spanish Inquisition went all the way into the 19th century, in case you've forgotten. And through the Crusades, we imposed the sword on those who are not doing what we want them to do. We fight wars. Uh, through the idea of imposition. The, the Christian evangelicals in the early 20th centuries, uh, some, of, uh, some of you uh, are delighted they got overruled, but you're, you remember prohibition, that we'll just outlaw alcohol altogether. That seems like such a foreign idea to us now, doesn't it? Uh, and they did that until the Roosevelt years. I think he liked to drink a little bit, so he got rid of that amendment, replaced it with another amendment. Uh, but we, it's, it's overreaching and it's using political human means to seek to bring in the kingdom of God. Now, often it's done by well-intentioned people, it's, but it's a well-intentioned mistake uh, and it doesn't work. And we've seen in our day some of the remnants of an impositional sort of thinking about how we're supposed to, supposed to influence those around us. And it leaves us with this. If you uh, poll, as has been done recently, non-believers, non-Christians in this country, and you ask them, what do you think of Christian believers, evangelicals in particular? They have about three things to say. These are the, by far the most common things they would say about believers. These are unbelievers talking about uh, believers. They'll say, number one, they're anti-homosexual. That's the number one thing. 
that basically they hate homosexuals. And, uh, and everything that they have to say about us is moralistic and negative in our view and treatment of the world. So somehow, through the decades of the moral majority and uh, other things uh, that we've all witnessed and participated in, uh, what we've left as a taste in the mouth of the unbeliever is all, all that they can see is that we want to take over and impose our moral standards on everybody against their will. That's the general. Now, look, I'm not saying that they're right, but that is the perception. And I think within that perception, there is some truth uh, that you and I need to be careful about. We need to be sure that we're not trying simply to impose our will on our environment for the sake of our having a friendly environment. Look, you're going to get your friendly environment. You just have to wait. And you cannot bring this friendly environment in. Only Christ can bring it in. He's going to. Meanwhile, we're salt and light. And we are the friendly environment to the rest of the world. We have some things to say. We have some warnings to give. But we only use the methods of persuasion. Rather than thinking that we can save this country through proper elections. Look, there's an evangelical in this town who said the other day, in getting riled up about this particular presidential election in front of us, this is, let me see if I can quote exactly what the evangelical said. The person said, This election will determine the future of our children. I go, what? I surely hope not. Because if, if this election determines the future of my children, they're toast. Either way, I mean, I don't want any election determining the future of my children. I would like for the, the Word and the Spirit. I'd like for God to determine the direction of my children, the future of my children. So, gentlemen, there are important issues that we have to deal with. We have to deal with social justice issues. We have to deal with a balanced or, shall we say, imbalanced budget. We have to deal with a lot of financial problems. We have to deal with a lot of international problems and how to manage all the chaos that's in the outside world that we're supposed to respond to. We have lots of issues that are important. But we must be very careful not to exchange the kingdom of God for the kingdoms of men, even the kingdom in which we live, the kingdom of the U.S. So uh, be very careful about impositional ideas. You are not going to bring in the kingdom of God either through your activity or electing someone else and having their activity bring it in either. And you can just look at the history of American presidencies and I think you'll have enough material to work on for a while. Uh, but look at the fourth model, which is the one that we believe the Bible is encouraging. It's called faithful engagement. That is, the world is his. The world is his. He owns it. He's the one to be glorified in it. He's the one to be pleased in it. We're not looking for our own comfort and convenience. We're, we're looking for the glory of God. And he's shown us how to do it. We, we just sang it a moment ago. Not with swords loud clashing, nor with the roll of stirring drums, but by deeds of love and mercy, his heavenly kingdom comes. So we're not going to do it with military. We're not going to do it even in the battle box. And those are both important. I believe in a good military. I believe in a just war theory, and I believe in Christians being engaged in the political process. I'm just saying to you, that is not how the kingdom of God is ushered in entirely. It's through being salt and light 
Okay, what, how do we do that then? Glad you asked. Let's keep looking at this, these verses. We've seen what we are. We're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But look, faithful engagement is demanding. Because being salt and light is very demanding. First of all, it's demanding because we must be holy. And I haven't, I don't know all of you personally, but the ones of you I do know, I've noticed you struggle with that. Just like me. It doesn't come naturally. This is really difficult stuff. I'm very naturally unholy. I had someone ask me the other day, oh, it was in our inquirers class for, for membership in our church. And a person said, would you please explain to me why it is that everything that God commands, I want to do the opposite. Would you please explain that to me? It just doesn't seem right. God's telling me to go this direction. Everything I want to do is over here going in this direction. Something's wrong with that. I said, yeah, you're right. Something is. It's you. (laughs) It is. That is the reality. Everything he commands me to do, I naturally want to do the opposite. It's only by his taking up residence in me that he begins to change my wanters. It's hard work to be a holy man. Very hard work. But you see, in Deuteronomy, we are told there, as we studied a couple of years ago, that the nations will come to see how great God is when He sees the laws and the truths that are embedded in His own people. When we live out those truths, when we are faithful to Him, they cannot help but notice that law, God is a great lawgiver. And you see in Ephesians chapter 5, I've listed there, The Apostle Paul talks about our being the light, sons of light. And that means that our conversations, he says, are very different. Our view of sexual relations is very different. The way that we love people is very different because we are people of light. And in 2 Corinthians 6, 14-7-1, where Paul talks about not being unequally yoked, he says, what does a worshiper of God have to do with the temple of Belial? And he says, come out and separate yourselves. So there is a, holiness just means separation. Now it doesn't mean withdrawal from society. But it means spiritually separating yourselves from that which is corrupt. So we're in the world, but we're not of it. When Jesus is praying for us in John 17, praying for us to be kept one and kept holy, he says, but Lord, he says, Father, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that yes, we discipline ourselves and yes, the church disciplines itself. But we're, we're not withdrawing ourselves from the world, he says. Otherwise, how would we reach men for Christ? So there's a spiritual separation and a physical engagement. Do you see how this works? And so often people do just the opposite. They physically separate and spiritually go limp. But we're to be spiritually strong and separate, different, salt, different from the meat that it's in. That's what makes us helpful is that we're different. And then as different people, we connect actively, aggressively with individual men and with society itself. That's the strategy in being holy. Leonard Ravenhill said the most amazing thing God ever did was to take an unholy man and make him holy and put him back in an unholy world and keep him holy in it. 
And that's exactly what God has done with making salt and creating light. Your light in the darkness. Your salt in a putrefying meat. What does salt do? Salt preserves. That was its main function in the first century. They didn't have refrigerators. So they rubbed the salt into the meat as deeply as they could get it. And that meat will be preserved. Some of you have had meat that's been preserved with salt. Some of us grew up on salt-cured hams. Woo! Man, talk about salty! Woo! But it'll keep your ham. Now, it'll burn your stomach out, but it'll keep your ham. I love, uh, I love country ham with all that salt in it. I grew up with it. That salt is put in there to preserve. You notice also that salt does season. And as you get old and fat like me, you realize I can't have as much salt as I used to. So now I avoid the salt shaker. I just try to use the pepper. Just give me the pepper, not the salt. But salt seasons things. It tastes better. It gives it savor. And that's what Christians are supposed to be. Preservers and seasoners of life itself. In the arts in education, in the professions, in the churches, in politics, everything. We season life and bring more beauty to it, more goodness, more truth. That's what salt is supposed to do. But we can't do it uh, if we don't live holy lives. So we must be a holy people. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, you, are, you must be holy because God is holy. God is separate from His creation. He is morally separate from everything that's corrupt. And He calls you into fellowship with Him. So if you're in fellowship with Him, you must renounce that with which He has nothing to do, which is evil, immorality, corruption. We separate ourselves from it, but not separating ourselves from the world. It's very, very, very difficult to live a holy life. But it is the greatest and highest joy of any human being. Because what does holiness do? It draws you into the presence of God and you enjoy His fellowship. And there's nothing greater than that. But secondly, notice, we must be helpful. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Gentlemen, yes, you live a holy life. Yes, you must separate yourself from corruption. But you must enter into a dark and broken world and be different in that world. That's our calling. You know, there's a little story of two caterpillars who are walking together along the path and they look up and they see a butterfly going overhead. And one caterpillar says to the other, you never get me up in one of those things. And there are a lot of human beings who have been regenerated, who have been given wings to fly and are still crawling around down the mud and trying to act like they're still caterpillars when God has raised them up spiritually and given them wings and they'd rather walk down here in the mud. No, get up, be different, fly, and be engaged in the world around you. Now, notice from Genesis chapter 12, this was God's idea from the beginning. And when you pick up in Isaiah 49, 6, same thing is true. God is reminding the Israelites hundreds of years later that, look, it's too small a thing for you just to restore the tribes of Judah, He says in 49.6. It's too small a thing for you just to restore the errant 
Christians who have gone off and haven't been in church for a while. That's a good thing to do. That's the first thing we do is to recover God's people within the church. But it's too too small a thing for you to do just that, he says. You are to be a light of revelation for the Gentiles. You are the messengers to the rest of the world. And rather than complaining that the world is encroaching on your walls, rather than complaining that corruption is all around you, how about like the, the American general who said who was told one morning the enemy was surrounding him and said, good, got them right where we want them. How about that? And, you know, when, we, when we've been faced with certain things in East Memphis where we feel like, you know, the corruption of the city is encroaching upon us, maybe we need to go out a little further. You know, just keep it on going. You know, let's just expand the county. Let's take over the next three counties and see if we can find some land out there where nobody lives. And let's build some more houses out there. It seemed to me the history of the Christian church was, no, we go toward the problems, not away from the problems. And we find so many evangelicals who are only interested in their front lawn, their back lawn, their swimming pool, their comfort and convenience, and no invasion of any corruption whatsoever except the ones that I generate on my television set. And the, uh, the picture of the Christian faith has been, no, we are salt and light. And when we've been at our best, particularly in the early centuries of the church, and we were exploding in numbers, we were invading the city, we were invading the neighborhoods of the poor, we were making a difference where nobody else was making a difference. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We must be helpful. Otherwise, we're not who we are. Jesus is saying to him, let me tell you what you are, what I made you. I made you salt. That's what I made you. I made you light. I did that. I made you that. Now, what do you think I made you light for? To take your little light and put it under your bushel and hide it. That's what you always do with light, don't you? No, you never do that with light. In your homes, I see what you do with light, he says. You put it up on the highest stand so it'll give light to all the house. That's what you do with a lamp. I've seen, you, I've seen you deal with light. I think you know what to do with light. You put it up in the chandelier so it shines down on us. I've watched you. You're smart people. Well, let me tell you something. I made you light. And you know what? I've noticed you all know what to do with salt. I gave you salt in creation, and I knew you'd figure it out. You figured it out to put it in meat and preserve putrefying meat. Good for you. You know what to do with salt. Well, let me tell you something. I made you that. So why don't you use the same head that you use to figure out what to do with salt and light and do it with yourself. And this is the way you help. Number one, we help with evangelism. The greatest corruption around us is that either people don't know that there is any way at all finally to come into the presence of God and enjoy enjoy His favor and live in a new heavens and a new earth they don't know about that at all, and they don't know how to get there. If you think everybody in Memphis knows how to do that, you'd be completely wrong. There are thousands of people, tens of thousands of people, surrounded with Bible preachers, and they do not know that there is a, a place of real shalom where they can travel, and they don't know how to get there. They need to know this. That's the number one issue of light itself, is to proclaim the gospel of light to those around us. And I know a friend of mine who's a Presbyterian elder, his son was into drugs and all kinds of things. 
And then one day his son came home and his dad said, I knew something had happened to him. I knew the Lord had done something in your heart before he even opened his mouth. And I said, how would you know? He said, it was in his eyes. I said, what about his eyes? He said, there was light there. The deadness and the dreariness of life was in his eyes before. And now he, he found Christ and got converted on the college campus. And there was light radiating from his eyes. Gentlemen, it is a powerful thing to know and believe the gospel. And there are people here who don't know it. Now, some of them have heard of this over and over again and have rejected it. And of course, we'll have good manners. We're not going to be harassing people, but we're always going to be right at their elbow. And the first time they give us an opportunity to plead with them again, we'll do so. Why? Because we were just like that ourselves, and everybody else is too. We naturally resist the gospel. Of all the things God has said to us, He has said, Repent and believe the gospel. And naturally, we want to do the opposite thing, every single one of us. And so when we're at the shoulder of someone who despises the gospel and wants nothing to do with Christ, all we can say is, but for the grace of God, so go I. And that's exactly where I was. And I'm going to have the same mercy on this man that God had upon me when I was in my unbelief. And we, like salt get rubbed into the lives of other people. We get involved with them. We do play golf with them. We do go hunting with them. And we do work with them. We go on business trips with them. And we may play a little low-stakes poker with them. But the real thing we want to do with them is to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't like low-stakes poker, only high-stakes poker, and that's the reason I don't play. (laughs) And if you look in Jeremiah 29, that famous verse... It tells us how we are to be helpful. It shows us that we're to go into an alien city. Here in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah is writing Israelites who have been exiled. They live in Babylon. Evil, wicked, alien, hostile Babylon. A city that they would have wished would have been destroyed. Now they live in it. Jeremiah writes them and says, you are to build houses there. You are to marry Your sons and daughters are to get married. You are to enter the economy. You are to plant gardens. You are to pray for the peace, the shalom, the welfare of that city. So don't tell me that there's any city in this country, any city in this world, that's disqualified from the total devotion of the evangelical people in their prayers and their service. There is no city that should have our contempt. If Babylon is not held in contempt, then I don't think Memphis or New York or Las Vegas should be held in contempt. It ought to be loved by the people of God. There's a minister in town who told me why he wanted to get away from this city, in this city. And he said, why poor good money Uh, after bad. Total withdrawal strategy. Of course, you can imagine I had a few things to say to that. But there are people in this city who think the right thing to do is to give up. The right thing to do is just hand it over. The right thing to do is just call down God's judgment. And then we'll just wait for Jesus to save us. There's some people who are intensely selfish and use theological rationale for their selfishness. Let it not be the people that Jesus Christ made salt. Let it not be the people that Jesus Christ made light. 
and we know what you make salt and light for. So first of all, evangelism, which means we've got to learn the gospel. We've got to share the gospel. We've got to teach the gospel. And we've got to defend the gospel. And the way in which we do each of those is extremely important. I mean, the first thing we've got to do, of course, is demonstrate the gospel. We'll get to that in a moment. But for the gospel to have any credibility from our lips, we've got to be the ones who care for people. If we're harsh with people in the workplace, what we say about the love of God makes no sense. If we're not appearing to be salt in the way that we behave with people, when we talk about salt, it doesn't make any sense. So we've got to demonstrate the gospel and we've got to learn the gospel so that if someone says to you, you know, I understand you go to church over here at Christ Methodist. Uh, You go pretty regularly? Yeah, man, I go all the time. That's a lot of time. How come you do that? Are you ready? Or as one of my customers years ago asked me, he said, so how much does it cost to get a pew in the Presbyterian church? I said, well, we don't, it doesn't cost us anything. He said, oh, it's free. I said, well, I wouldn't quite put it like that. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, we tithe. What's a tithe? This was a business friend, one of my customers, and he was Jewish, and he was asking me what a tithe is. I said, Steve, it's in the Torah. Tithe, 10%. 10% of what? 10% of your earned income. 10% of your earned income? That's what it costs to get a pew in the Presbyterian church, he said. Yeah. That's what the Lord wants, just to remind us that he owns it all. Well, so why do you do that, he says. Are you ready for an answer to that? Can you give an answer to those who ask? What about someone who says, you know, the problem with you all is you think that your way is the only way for anyone to get to heaven. Do you have an answer for that? Really, this is not rocket science. You don't have to go to seminary to get an answer for that. You just need to know that you need an answer for that. And when you know it's your responsibility to have an answer for that, give yourself about an hour, go read a couple books, pull up a few things on the website, and you can get an answer to that. You need to have an answer for that. And it needs to be a gentlemanly, kind, non-judgmental, clear answer to that. And through that answer, you can display the kindness of a Christian, his, his deeds of love and mercy, and you can explain why we're so deeply convicted by the love of Christ. That he would come to this earth. Has anybody ever done that before? Did Buddha incarnate God and die on a cross for us, pay for our sins? Did Muhammad provide a place for us in heaven? And did he shed his own blood that we can get our way to heaven? Did anybody else do this? Is the biblical description of our problem correct or not? Well, it sure looks to me that it is. When I know my own heart, I find the Bible describes it completely. There's nothing but wickedness in my own heart. Everything I do is selfish by my own nature until Christ takes over my life. So, of course, I don't find anything else in the world that describes the problem or gives me any hope. Of course. And do you think that if there were some other way that God would send His Son to die on a cross? Now, talk about cruelty. Send your own Son to die on a cross and there's some other way. Give me a break. God would be cruel if he did that. There's no other way. And that's the reason he sent his own son. That was the only way to accomplish it, obviously, or God would not have done that. And we could go on and on. Do you have some answers for that? Do you have some answers for the hope that is within you? Whatever it is you believe, gentlemen, you should have an answer for it. Some of you here are in the sales business, and you spend a lot of your time 
anticipating the objections of your customers. You spend a lot of your time studying your competitors and why your product is better than their product. And, of course, you have to be very careful how you do that because you don't want to be guilty of trashing your competitor. You want to be subtle about it, don't you? And you figure all that out. How can I still be considered a nice guy and still trash my competitor? And you're working on that all the time, thinking about how you can set forward your company and your product as the cat's meow. You're an adult, and you're responsible for that. You should do that if you're a salesperson. And in fact, I'm a buyer. I want you to do that. Give me all the reasons I should buy your product before I invite the next guy in and ask him to give me all the reasons why I should buy his product. That's what we do. Well, you are salt, and you are light. You are agents of headquarters. You have a job to do. How's it going? That's what we need to ask ourselves in evangelism. Secondly, service. There's a little poem that John Stott on his book called uh, Involvement quotes uh, that kind of uh, summarizes uh, the problem that we sometimes face. And uh, I'm here it is. Uh, it goes like this. It's not a poem. It's really a statement. I was hungry, and you formed a humanities group to discuss my hunger. I was imprisoned, and you crept off quietly to your chapel and prayed for my release. I was naked, and in your mind you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and thanked God for your health. I was homeless. And you preached to me of the spiritual shelter of the love of God. I was lonely. And you left me alone to pray for me. You seem so holy, so close to God. But I am still very hungry and lonely and cold. Gentlemen, we're supposed to take care of people who are hungry and lonely and cold. Not by talking about them. Not only by praying for them. But by relieving them of their distress. Salt and light is to preserve and to enlighten. So we teach and we preserve. And there are some people living very close to us right here in this city. And there are people around the world who desperately need to be preserved. For whom the very essentials of life are not available. Who are dying of common diseases. Right here in Memphis. It is the beautiful burden of people who've been made salt of the earth to go in and to give good deeds because of the good deeds done for us on Calvary's cross. That's the whole motivation because this was done for us. We were clothed. We were fed. We were given water to drink. We were given a friend. We were all of a sudden enfranchised. We were empowered. We were given hope. He did all of this for us. And he's saying, I want you to do that for other people. Now, of course, we are most concerned about people's eternal afflictions. That's the reason I start with the preaching of the gospel. But if we are really concerned about their welfare and not just being good Christians relative to them, Let me say it again. If we're really concerned about their welfare and not just our record as being good Christians relative to them, 
then of course we're concerned about all their affliction. The proof of whether your evangelism is self-referential or other reverent, others reverent, referential is your engagement in every need of their life. If we're not engaged in temporal suffering, then no matter what we say, our evangelism is re- with reference to ourselves and our wanting to be good Christians. It has not very much at all to do with our concern about their welfare. If we're really concerned about their welfare, we're concerned about all of their welfare. So uh, that puts a huge burden and opportunity upon God's people. So wherever God's people are, wherever they are in the world, their obligation is to work in radiating circles. You begin with your family, your church, your neighborhood, your community, your city, your region, your country, and the world. And you're responsible for all of them, every square inch of it. Those circles that are closest to us, we do them hands-on. Those circles that are away from us, like foreign countries, we pray for and support other brothers and sisters who will go and represent Christ and represent us in those foreign countries. But we take every square inch of property and the one that's near us, we do hands-on. And there's a lot that's near us. We have educational problems, child care problems, tutoring problems, all kinds of problems. People need light. They need the light of the gospel, the light of Christ. They need the light of human learning. They need the light of hope that if they do learn, then they can enter into the economy around us and make a difference and sustain themselves and those that they care and love for, they care for and love. So we are the people who provide education. It's a gospel consideration. It's not every man for himself. No, you're salt. It's not every man for himself. And it's not just you and your family. You're salt. You're light. You radiate way out there in the distance. As Paul says, you're stars shining in the universe. So certainly we shine in the world. So we care about education. We care about job opportunities. The unemployment rate is up around 9% nationally. Well, it's up around 35% among males in Memphis proper between the ages of 18 and 35. Does that have anything to do with us? I think it has a lot to do with us. Does it mean that you're going to be extra patient in seeking to hire people who may be difficult to employ and difficult to train? Yes, it does. To the best of your ability, you're going to think creatively and use your assets, your resources, your pro bono time. But if you have the ability, even your business, if you happen to be, have equity in your business... You can't make somebody else's business do that. You have to do it on your own time. But if you own the business, you've got the ability to use your business to leverage, to make, to create jobs and opportunities and training for people who've grown up in a neighborhood of despair. You're salt. You're a light. That's your job description. Certainly with housing. Some of you have helped build homes. Well, it's not just building the home, but it's training people how to how to take care of a home. is training people how to finance a home, how to pay their bills on time, and so on. Well, we could just go on and on. Are you creatively looking for opportunities to engage? For those of you who are Second Presbyterian, of course, we've got no excuse. This weekend with CityServe, we've got about 55 or 60 partners in this city. Find one. Find one. Go around the hallways, talk to people, and find somebody who's doing something in an area where you think you could be of help. 
where you're willing to be trained and find an avenue to serve in the city. That's what salt and light does. And then thirdly, social justice. It's not just deeds of mercy. It's actually legal strategies, political strategies. It's uh, uh, revolutions. It is being sure that the disenfranchised and the poor are protected. It's being sure that we not hand over a massive debt to the next generation. We're just living on our grandchildren's uh, labor right now. We're just borrowing, we're borrowing our grandchildren's money and spending it like crazy. At the same time, we use that as an excuse not to take care of poor people and those who really need help with their education. That's going to be the big problem. So, so that's the way we're going to solve the balanced budget. So take your pick. You can either be way overspent or, uh, and, and care for the poor, or we can get ourselves in, in uh, balanced uh, finances and, and, and we'll, we'll cut the services to the poor. I just want to suggest that sounds like some diabolical thing. Do you want to, would you rather be sliding down a razor blade with someone throwing a big ball of snot at you, or would you rather dunk down into a pit of vomit? You remember those things we used to get at kids? You know, take your choice. Which would you do? No, thank you. There's got to be another answer. And it probably has something to do with a lot of people like us whose main concern is not for the needs of others. It's to be sure I have enough and I will have enough and my children will have enough and we're all acquiring at such massive rates that it's just sucking the communal life of this country dry because we've so become so intensely selfish with our politics. What about public morality? It's a shame to be advertising publicly things that only tease men away from faithfulness to their marriages. And we do that all throughout this community. And some of you are fighting it hard and we appreciate it. But we have all kinds of things. The immigration policy. We have involvement in our politics. It's very important that Christians engage the political process of the nation to which they belong. When you're given the privileges that we are in this country and it's not true everywhere, and somewhere it's just a mere faux privilege. It doesn't. Re- you can vote, but it doesn't really make much difference because the reigning group is going to put in more ballots into their box than you can possibly put into yours. But in our nation where you, you vote, and by and large, except in Chicago, your votes are counted accurately. <laughs> and you have a privilege. And so, sometimes you don't go to the ballot box. And you don't educate yourself on the issues in front of us. We're salt and light, so we're supposed to be engaged in the political process. And when we engage the political process, our rhetoric is to be different. Rather than turning our pistols at the opposing political party to the one you happen to belong to, which is what everybody does, caricatures the other position and then tries to shoot down the straw man. That's what everybody's doing. And CNN does it and Fox News does it. They just create a caricature of the opponent's position and then shoot it down with no-brainer bullets. Rather than doing that, what do believers do? The believers begin with self-criticism. The party I belong to needs to do this. The party I belong to needs to do this. Secondly, when we represent the other party, we represent them in the most intelligent way they could possibly be represented. As a matter of fact, we give them new arguments for their own position. Sometimes they don't argue their position very well, so we help them. If I were in your shoes, I'd be saying this. Oh, that's a good argument. Yeah, you should try that. I would be saying this, and here's the problem I see with it. 
So we don't caricature the opponent's argument. And I find evangelicals, when November, every four year comes around, I get emails flying around of ridiculous caricatures of opponents' positions. That's from hell. And you shouldn't be passing those things on. And when you're talking about somebody else's position, if you don't know what that position is yourself, you better read about that position from the person who said it and do your investigative work before you pass things on. Be very, very careful. We're salt. We're light, which means truth and goodness and beauty. And so when all the pressure is on of a political campaign, this is when we at all times should be at our absolute best and be different. Salt is different from the meat. Light is different from the darkness. And that's what makes it stand out. Now lastly, in verse 16, you get where this all heads. Faithful engagement glorifies God. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the purpose of it all. Jesus says, I have chosen you, John 15, 8, that you may bear much fruit and thereby glorify your Father in heaven. This glorifies God when we are real salt and when we get out of the shaker and when we rub it into society through deeds of love and mercy and representing the truth in a loving and kind and intelligent way. Oh, God is glorified through that. Even when people throw rotten eggs at you, God is glorified through that. And the reason they're throwing eggs at you is because you're only exposing their own wickedness. And they hold you in contempt because of it. But God is worshipped. This is true worship. It's worship that emanates from our sanctuaries, goes out into a corrupt world, and remains salt and light. It stays different. It's just as doxological out there in the world as it was when we were swaying, holding our hands up and singing praise songs. We're doing that in the world when we're salt and light. We're praising the Lord Jesus Christ when we go out and do these things in the world. So gentlemen, have a great day of worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the calling upon our lives to be salt and light. Thank you for making us salt and making us light. And we ask your forgiveness for the many times when we have stayed in the salt shaker, put the bushel over our our lamp, and have tried to hide and withdraw. Forgive us for the times we've tried to take over just so that our lives would be happier rather than serving our neighbor as we ought. And Lord, make us patient to wait for the day when all the seasoning of this life and all the radiating light from flickering lamps like our own have shown for centuries that you will come. You will come, Lord Jesus, as the light of the world. And we shall be light with you. And everything shall be gloriously renewed. And we shall be at peace. Grant us faithfulness during this day to engage the world for the praise of our Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.